Okay, okay. I know I said I wouldn't let as much time pass as last time, and here I am letting huge gaps of time pass between episodes. And rather than say I won't do it again, I've written down reasons why it's so late this time. So here we go. Seven reasons, excuses, why this episode is so late. Number one, my kids, like many of yours, are out of school and doing schooling from home. And I'm now the unofficial referee between two teenage boys, and the second I turn my back, RKO's out of nowhere. Number two, I had to wait for the skin on my hands to grow back from all the hand washing. Number three, I found myself in a diabetic coma for the first week of quarantine from stress eating all my quarantine snacks. Number four, two words, Tiger King. More words. I watched it seven damn times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. Number five, I was busy using my stimulus check to buy a baby tiger. Number six, I have wicked ADD, and the squirrel hunts make it almost impossible to concentrate on one thing at a time. Number seven, I got sucked into the vortex of coronavirus and Tiger King memes on Facebook and lost like two weeks before I came out of it. Go easy on me, dude. I'm old. I'll be back after the music. Stay tuned for episode number 11. pandemic. I know it's been kind of stressful on everybody and it affects everybody differently. Um, I saw something on Facebook the other day I wanted to share with you. Um, it said that don't make the mistake of thinking we're all in the same boat. We're going through the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. And I think that's because everybody is affected differently by this pandemic. Some people are able to hold their head up until everything's open again. Some people are unable to do that because the loss of their job or their income makes it very, very difficult for that to happen. So just remember, everybody's going through it, but we're not going through it the same way. So please be kind, be courteous to everybody else. This is Megan, and you have found the Wheel of Crime podcast. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at wheelocrimepodcast at gmail.com. Send me an email. Let me know how you're dealing with this pandemic. How has it affected you? How is your life different now? How is it the same? Me and my friend Aaron, you know Aaron, music maestro, he told me that, he, he said, I, I feel like I have been waiting for this my whole life because my life has not changed. And I'm going, I know exactly what you, what you mean. Other than not being able to see my 
uh, family on Sundays, life really hasn't changed a whole lot because I was already that kind of person that socially distanced myself from other people. So this is actually okay for me. I can handle it. But anyway, send me an email. Let me know how you feel. What's going on with you guys. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Wheel of Crime Podcast. You can also reach out to us there. Now you're listening to episode number seven. And in the last episode, the wheel chose the subject of mass murder. Mass murder is defined as an act of murdering a number of people either simultaneously or, or over a short period of time in close proximity. The FBI says it's murdering four or more persons during an event with no cooling off in between. This varies from spree killing where someone kills multiple people over a short period of time in multiple locations. Okay, so today we're going to talk about a mass murder that happened in Martinsville, Indiana, the year 2000. Unless you're from here, you probably have never heard of it. And I'm going to be honest, until I started doing research for this podcast, I hadn't heard of this incident either. But at the time it happened, I was living in Georgia, so that's probably why. No other podcast has covered this one yet um, that I could find, so another first for the Wheel of Crime. Yay! So in doing this research... Uh, Little things are popping out at me, and and my mind can't help but make some parallels to the first episode we did about Steve and Judy. Like, you know, his last name is her first name. Well, that that's just an obvious one. Now, if you haven't listened to the episode number one about Steve and Judy, stop this episode. Go back and listen. Go ahead. I'll wait. Hey, welcome back. Also, as a side note, Criminology just put out an episode on, sa- on Sunday, April 19th, about the Chastain family murders. Criminology is a podcast that's run by Mike Ferguson, who also hosts the podcast True Crime All the Time, and Mike Morford, who also runs the podcast Murder in My Family. Mike Morford, by the way, was also, if you guys are if you guys are on Hulu, um, there's, it, it's Hulu and I think it's on ID as well. Um, they did a, the Golden State Killer, um, how they come about catching him. It was a little docuseries. He's in that too. Mike Morford is. It's pretty interesting. But he also hosts... Uh, murder in my family and that's a really good podcast it talks about people who's uh, who have had relatives who have been murdered and the effect that it's left on them so if you have some time check out those podcasts they're excellent so this happened roughly 20 miles from my house and this was about 20 years ago and approximately 12 miles from where Steve and Judy took the lives of Terry Lee Chastain and her three children on the same road State Road 67 in Morgan County, just slightly north of Wilbur Road. At this juncture, the road is a two-lane divided highway, so that the southbound lanes never come in contact with the northbound lanes except at turn points. Coincidentally, <laughs> Wilbur Road is also the road we would turn onto when visiting my uncle Steve when he lived on the lake in Martinsville. And I had no idea of the horrible accident that took the lives of seven innocent people, six of which were children, and wounded a community that still bears the scars to this day. On March 25, 2000, Judy Kirby left a Speedway gas station and turned the wrong way on State Road 39, which is the same as, US, uh, as, as State Road 67 once you pass into Martinsville. Um, heading north in the southbound lanes at speeds of upwards of 90 miles an hour, she drove for 1.7 miles in a white 1989 Pontiac Firebird with a ragtop that was not up when this happened. Um, she did this before clipping the bumper of a car and then careening headfirst into a minivan, launching it in the air before it came to rest on its side. Now, the carnage was unspeakable. Twisted metal, broken glass, and nine bodies were strewn all over the southbound lanes, and these gave the first responders nightmares 
to for weeks to come. I mean, they had to have serious therapy for what they were about to see. And you'll understand why as we get more into this. You see, when Judy Kirby, who was dealing with stress and a multitude of other mental and emotional issues, when she did this, when this happened, she had four of her children with her in the car. Three of those children were her own. Jordan was 12, Joni was nine, Jacob was five. And the fourth was her nephew, Jeremy Young, of whom she had custody, who had turned 10 that day. That was his birthday. This happened on his 10th birthday, about five o'clock in the evening. Driving the minivan was Thomas Reel, who was 40, who was returning home from a church function along with his daughter, Jessica, 14, his son, Bradley, 13, all of whom died at the scene, and a friend of Bradley's named Richard Miller, who was also 13 at the time, who would, along with Kirby, end up surviving. Thomas Reel had no time to react. Nobody in Judy Kirby's vehicle was wearing seatbelts, so all but one child was ejected. They were finding children in the roadway, along the side of the road, in the drainage ditch. Richard and Judy were airlifted to Methodist Hospital. But why did she do it? What on earth would make a mother take her vehicle recklessly into oncoming traffic with her children on board and play a deadly game of chicken with the oncoming traffic? Well, that's a pretty loaded question with this case I found. So, like always, in order to understand why, why this happened, we have to go back a little bit into the past and see what led up to this tragedy. In doing this research, there isn't a whole lot of available information unless you dig back into the paper or to the newspaper archives. And even then, you have to take what's printed with a grain of salt. There's no book written about it, and I haven't been able to find court transcripts on the first trial, only the appeals. I had a lot of questions regarding what articles I could find, so I decided to go back on newspapers.com and see what was there. Uh, they are a wealth of knowledge, so if you guys ever decide, hey, I want to start a podcast, or I've got to research an incident or something, it's worth going and getting that seven-day trial on newspaper.com. I went ahead and just bought the subscription because it's uh, it's going to help me in doing this podcast even better. Anyway, let's get back to this. Um, so anyway, I decided to go back on there and see what was there, which was a lot more than I got just Googling this case. So here we go. We're going to have a short little synopsis of who she really is, or who she was, I don't know. Judy Walker was born on November 16th, 1968, and she was the youngest of nine kids. The family grew up in the Fountain Square area in Indianapolis. This is the south side of town, kind of like central south side. This is not the most um, affluential neighborhood. It's it's a pretty um, lower, lower middle class uh, neighborhood. Nothing wrong with it, though. Um, but anyway, and, and she attended Arsenal Tech High School. This is the same high school attended by Sylvia Likens in 1965, by the way. She married Victor Kirby in Tennessee when she was 15 years old, and they would go on to have five children together. Court records indicate that Judy filed for divorce in October of 1995. After a custody dispute, Judy, Judy was awarded sole custody of their minor children, and the, 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 the divorce was granted in March of 1997, but Victor said in an article in the Daily Journal, which is out of Franklin, that Judy had trouble accepting the end of the relationship. In reading the Googled articles about the crash, there are a few mentions of uh, about what was going on in her life at the time, such as her being paranoid about going to jail on a drug trafficking charge, and that she was distraught of the breakup with her ex-husband's brother. Of course, this made me go, um, what? 
Some articles don't address the fact that her two exes were related, but the Daily Journal and a few others do state that her most recent ex, whose name was Tinny Kirby, uh, was her husband's uncle, not brother, and that she has two children with him and another child uh, whose paternity is in question. They never mention anything about this other child or who's the baby daddy. Okay. So apparently, Judy and Tinny were wrapped up in drug dealing. Several witnesses testified at the trial that she was illegally trafficking uh, Dilaudid out of her Fountain Square home and that she sold the pills, which is a form of morphine, for like $50 to $60 per pill. Sometimes she would take trades uh, like vehicles for payment or some kind of an asset. How did she get the pills, you ask? Well, she would get them from different suppliers. Well, you know, for example, one woman testified that she would take some of her husband's pills prescribed to him for his cancer and sell them to, to Kirby for cash so that she could pay her gas bill. Now, it is a fact that they do tend to over-prescribe pain pills when you have cancer, but I'm sorry, people who have cancer should have a lot of pain pills ready. That is a painful, painful disease, and it's a hard thing to have to go through when you're recovering. But, and I and I don't want to demonize this woman for selling those pills, because maybe her husband was like, hey, it's okay, I've got these extras, go ahead, we have to pay our gas bill. When your provider is not able to provide, you know, you have to do what you have to do to take care of your family and to keep you guys afloat. So I get it. I'm not going to touch that one. I'm not going to judge. We're just going to say that's what it was. So in this house, the tension was really high. Testimony given at trial over by over 140 witnesses painted a picture of a woman slowly beaten, eaten alive with stress. She was raising over 10 kids, eight of which were her own and two were her sisters of whom she had custody. And she had gotten herself involved with a man who would call her on the phone while he was having sex with other women just to torment her. When she'd said she'd had enough and wanted to end the relationship, Tinny threatened to turn Judy in for drug dealing so that her kids would be taken away from her because he wanted her and not all those kids, according to several witness statements. The, and, and he denies, I'm going to say this right now, everything that is alleged that he did, he flat out denied. But you have everybody saying the same thing. You can deny it all you want, but I'm sorry. I'm sh pretty sure he did all this stuff. He just doesn't want to look like an ass. Though there are no court records to back it up, her ex-husband Victor would say that they were going to go back to court to redetermine custody of the kids and that she was paranoid that he was going to win and she would lose all her children. Now, this could be probably because the children were present while the drug dealing was going on in the house. Now, I know it's not like, hey, here's some heroin, here's some... Uh, here's some pot. It's not like that. It's it's drugs that are legally prescribed, but they're not legally prescribed to the people she's selling them to. So she is technically trafficking drugs. Okay, so whatever. But those people who, who were there, who testified, who were present, they said that she kept that away from the kids. But it doesn't matter. The kids were there. So most everyone who testified about her mothering skills also said that she, that the kids were well-mannered, well-fed, and that Judy maintained a clean house and seemed to overall love her children. Um, I'm not going to make an assessment at this point about that. Um, so Judy allegedly kept a ledger in which she recorded these drug transactions. And I asked my mom about this, like, why would anybody do that? And she said, well, back then they did that. They would keep ledgers because you want to know who your your customers are i don't know um but anyway the police were never able to find this ledger it is also said that tinny stole it to blackmail judy which even further fed into her increasing paranoia 
one of these girlfriends uh, named Susan Payne testified that after Judy confronted Tinney about his and Susan's affair, uh, Judy accused him of being a drug dealer. And it was a back and forth thing. He's saying she's a drug dealer. She's saying he's a drug dealer. He said, she said. So Susan said that, to, that Tinney had pulled out of the ledger and showed Susan that she was lying, that, that uh, Judy was lying, and that she was the drug dealer and the ledger was the proof he had on her. Judy invited Susan to their home when she found out that Tinney had lied to her, uh, that his name was not Tim Kirby, that he was not 41, but 46 and the grandfather. She said on the stand that at this point, everything I knew about him was a lie. Interestingly enough, while other witnesses said Judy was a loving mother to the 10 kids she was raising, Susan says the house was in chaos during her visit in 1999. She said it was midnight and all the kids were up and that the infant was being cared for by Judy's 13-year-old son and her 9-year-old daughter. She said that she felt like they were raising themselves. Okay, now think about this. All the other witnesses who knew the family described Judy as a good mom, someone who loved her kids, who took care of them and whatnot. The only person who says otherwise is a woman who was having sex with Judy's boyfriend. Now, he was lying to her, so he could have told this woman anything, which apparently he did. And the only time this woman ever meets Judy is the night Judy finds out this woman is sleeping with her boyfriend, Baby Daddy. And it's the middle of the night, and there's probably a lot of chaos in this house, considering she's dealing with not only her boyfriend's infidelity, but now dealing with explaining herself to this woman and showing her that Tinny was with her, and they had kids, and in fact they had just had a baby together. While I don't think I would have done what she did, I completely sympathize with that situation. Susan also said that Judy told her that she was done with Tinny and that she was tired of dealing with him. Now I realize this doesn't exactly paint the entire picture, but it does offer some insight into what was going on in the months leading up to the wreck. Tinny had her convinced that she was going to jail by telling her he was a federal informant. Now, come on. If he wasn't doing this, if he wasn't dealing the drugs, why would he do this? Why would he torment her and say, hey, I'm a federal informant and I'm going to get you busted on this shit? When really he wasn't. So anyway, <clears throat> that was uh, that was a mind. He, he was screwing with her mind. And several other witnesses at trial said that she thought the feds were watching her. She thought that surveillance cameras were mounted on the poles outside her house and that somebody had bugged the walls inside the house. She was even convinced that drug agents were tunneling under the house. She was highly paranoid and hypervigilant at this point. Now let's discuss the events that happened a few weeks before the crash. Because all these articles vary in detail, I'm going to go with the timeline given to the appeal or given in the appeal document in 2002. Yes, there was an appeal. And this is verbatim from the document because it has the best timeline given. Okay, directly from the appeals document, the state's theory was that uh, Kirby intended to commit suicide because of her tumultuous relationship with her boyfriend and her fear of either being arrested as a result of her involvement with drugs or losing her children. The defense maintained that Kirby suffered from a medical condition called hyperthyroidism, which caused her to become psychotic and paranoid. The facts most favorable to the convictions follow. For some time prior to March 25th, 2000, Kirby was under stress because her relationship with Tinny Kirby and her concern about losing, the, losing him and the children. Kirby was also concerned about getting into trouble with the police because of her involvement with drugs. As a result of this stress, Kirby exhibited many bizarre behaviors such as wearing disguises, placing cam cameras in trees, reporting that people were watching and following her and expressing thoughts of suicide. 
On March 2, 2000, Kirby was involuntarily committed to the psychiatric unit at St. Francis Hospital. There, Kirby was diagnosed with psychosis and given Risperdal, an antipsychotic drug. Kirby was also diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. On March 4, 2000, Kirby's mental condition had improved to the point where she was no longer seen as an immediate danger to herself and others, and thus released from St. Francis Hospital. On March 25th, 2000, Kirby, three of her eight children, and her nephew, Jeremy Young, collectively called The Children, left the Greenwood residence of Janetta Scott, Kirby's sister, and drove to a car wash and then to a McDonald's for soft drinks. Scott was worried about Kirby's condition and followed Kirby in her own car. When Kirby left McDonald's, she passed Scott's car and then came to a complete stop in the roadway. Scott went around Kirby's stopped car and turned around at the first side street available. However, Scott lost sight of Kirby because Kirby drove away after Scott had passed her. Subsequently, Kirby stopped her car at a stop sign near Sarah Mullins' driveway and remained there for approximately two minutes as other motorists drove around her. Mullins approached Kirby's car and asked if Kirby needed to use her telephone. After Kirby indicated that she did need to use the telephone, Mullins went into her house, got a cordless phone, and gave it to Kirby. Kirby drove away with the phone and Mullins called 911. However, when Mullins looked out a window, she saw Kirby's car sitting in front of her garage. Mullins went outside and retrieved the telephone. Kirby sat in her car in Mullins' driveway, staring straight ahead for approximately five minutes and then drove off. Kirby then showed up uninvited at a, at a baby shower on State Road 67 and High School Road. Kirby exclaimed to everyone at the shower that she was looking for a birthday party because it was her son's birthday. Kirby and the children stayed at the baby shower for approximately 15 to 20 minutes and then left Kirby's car. At approximately 4.44 p.m., Kirby arrived at a gas station on State Road 67 in Martinsville, Indiana, where she purchased gas and candy. Shortly before 5 p.m., Kirby left the gas station and drove her car the wrong way, entering an exit ramp from, from State Road 67. Kirby accelerated as she drove the wrong way on the exit ramp. Kirby traveled northbound on the southbound in the southbound lanes on State Road 67. Nine motorists had to take evasive action, such as driving away from the lane in which Kirby was speeding the wrong way to avoid colliding with Kirby's car. One motorist had continually, continuously blown her horn to alert Kirby up to the, of the danger. Several motorists testified that Kirby made no effort to evade oncoming traffic, so I highly doubt the newspaper's accounts when they're saying she was weaving in and out. In addition, Kirby passed six wrong way traffic signs and 10 do not enter signs, which were posted along the roadway and visible to motorists. There was also an emergency lane available to Kirby for getting out of the way of oncoming traffic. Eventually, Kirby's car clipped the back of another car, then collided with a van, causing the van to bolt into the air and then land on its side. Kirby's car was traveling over 90 miles per hour when it struck a van when it struck the van. A later investigation of Kirby's car indicated that her brakes that her brake lights were not on at the time of impact. The van's passengers included Thomas Reel, his son Bradley Reel, and his daughter Jessica Reel, collectively called the Reels, and Bradley's friend Richard Miller. The children and the Reels all died at the scene of the collision. Miller was injured and suffered permanent impairment of his back and right foot. 
Kirby was thrown from the car and suffered a closed head injury and various orthopedic injuries. Okay, so let's go back to March 2nd when she was admitted into St. Francis Hospital. The appeals document states that she was involuntarily committed to the psychiatric unit at the hospital, but I haven't found an article or any other information stating why she was committed or who committed her. However, most articles on the case all state that Judy went in, went in voluntarily and then go on to state that family members don't know why she refused additional treatment when she left two days later. Her mother states in an article in the Daily Journal on March 29th, 2000, that the doctors told them that she needed 24-hour supervision, but the appeals document states that she was diagnosed with psychosis, given Risperdal, and was also diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. It goes on to say that her, her condition improved to the point where the staff felt she was no longer in immediate danger to herself and others, and that's why she was released. And it does not state that she ever refused treatment. Details like that are important, and it really bothers me that they were not reported accurately. I am more prone to believe what's written in the appeals document because it's verified through the court. There's a big difference between being involuntarily committed and going in yourself. And then two days later against the wishes and leaving two days later against the wishes of the hospital is very different from being released because your condition improved. Another discrepancy I found is that after leaving her sister's house and deciding and heading to Toys R Us to pick up a toy for one of the kids' birthdays, a few articles mentioned that her sister decided to follow her. Some make it sound like they were going to Toys R Us together and that the sister got lost. Others say that the sister was suspicious and followed her, but got lost. And the appeals document stated that Judy intentionally invaded, or I'm sorry, evaded her sister after discovering she was being followed, and going to Toys R Us was never mentioned at all. It says she went to McDonald's. Newspapers are out to sell papers, not report the truth. So remember that when you're doing any kind of research and if at all possible, read the court documents. So let's talk about hyperthyroidism real quick because it becomes a major part of her defense as well. Hyperthyroidism is a condition that occurs when your thyroid is overactive and it can speed up your metabolism. According to WebMD, it can cause unexpected weight loss, nervousness, mood swings, fatigue, goiters, faster uneven heartbeat, increased bowel movements, tremors, thin skin, brittle hair, and a decrease in menstrual cycles. But can hyperthyroidism cause psychosis? The Journal of Medicine and Life says that psychosis is a rare complication of hyperthyroidism. It is reported in 1% of cases, and most patients who develop psychosis have previously been diagnosed with mania and or delirium. Now, there's no indication that Judy was ever diagnosed with mania or delirium in her past, nor was that brought up at trial. I'm no endocrinologist, but I'm not going to say it's possible or not possible that her thyroid condition played a role in her mental state at the time of the crash. But it seems like an incredibly weak argument given the fact that she had a lot of other external pressures happening all at once. Her sister Kathy told the press that she's constantly crying. She would just look at you and bust out crying, she said. So through witness testimony in the court documents and interviews with the family, there's little doubt that there was something very wrong with Judy. Look at the weird stuff she was doing that day. She stopped in the middle of the road when she saw her sister's car, then drove away. She stopped her car at a stop sign for a full two minutes before a woman come out to ask her from her house if she needed to use her phone. Judy said yes, and when the woman brought out her cordless phone, she drove away with it. 
but then came back to her driveway before giving the phone back to the woman. She stayed on the woman she stayed in the woman's driveway staring straight ahead for 5 minutes before leaving. Somehow she makes it from Greenwood down to Kentucky Avenue, which is also State Road 67 and High School Road, which is 3 minutes away from my house by the way where she shows up at a baby shower at Valley Brook Trailer Park and says she's looking for a birthday party because it was her son's birthday. She and the kids stay for about 20 minutes before leaving. Why did she stop there? She didn't know anyone there. From there, she makes the almost 25 to 30 minute drive south on 67 to the Speedway gas station in Martinsville where she buys gas and candy. No one in her family knows why she was even driving to Martinsville because she didn't know anyone there either. Now, this account is pretty sterile because it's given in a court document. There's probably way more detail to this story, but that's the basic gist. While her family acknowledges that she was very depressed and crying at the drop of a hat, they emphatically deny that Judy was suicidal. Her ex-husband disagrees. He said that Judy told two of her sons, this is her older boys, that she wanted to commit suicide. Victor firmly believed that Judy caused the crash because she wanted to prevent him from gaining custody of the kids. He also said, she led me to believe she was going to let me have those kids. She put me off for another week, then this happened. What happened was that Judy Kirby re-entered the southbound lanes traveling northbound at a high rate of speed, just pedal to the metal. She passed six wrong way signs and ten do not enter signs. There was an emergency lane available to her to move out of the way. Now, some say she was weaving in and out of traffic, and nine motorists had to take evasive action to avoid being hit. One woman said that the car seemed to be driving fast, but in a straight line and was not weaving all over the road at all. There's a few descriptions in several news articles of eyewitness accounts, and the most haunting, my goodness, is when they describe a little boy sitting on the front seat on his knees his hands on the dashboard, screaming, screaming as they drove to their death. That's really hard to get out of your head once you hear something like that. There were no skid marks on the pavement and no witnesses reporting or reported seeing her brake lights at the time. This is important because Judy's family and defense lawyers all say this was a horrible accident and that she was not suicidal and did not intend on killing anyone. If she wasn't suicidal and didn't intend on killing anybody, why didn't she attempt to stop? Her sister Kathy contends that if she wanted to kill herself, she would have taken all ten kids with her. I think Kathy was trying to help, but saying that she would have killed her kids then herself doesn't exactly help prove that she wasn't suicidal in this case. And in fact, the evidence suggests otherwise. Judy ended up in the hospital for a few days in a coma, and both legs were broken, both ankles were crushed, but nothing life-threatening. She also had a head injury, which conveniently robbed her of her memory of the crash. While she was in the hospital, investigators continued to look into everything leading up to the accident, and they were immediately suspicious about the cause of the crash. They reported finding a note in the car that Kirby apparently acknowledged writing. It read, quote, I love you, but I can't have you the way I want you without any children. I want to be a good parent. I don't care about the money thing. It's the love. I love them at times. I get angry. I know me and my children need help. A detective with the Morgan County Sheriff's Office stated in court documents that the note corroborated witness statements that a boyfriend wanted Kirby, but not all the children. When she left the hospital on April 14, 2000, she was arrested and taken to Martinsville via ambulance to make an appearance in Mer Morgan Superior Court. I'm sorry, I'm from Marion County, so I'm always like, Marion County Superior Court. 
When the judge asked her if she understood her rights, she cried and said that she didn't understand and that she didn't remember anything that happened. She was charged with seven counts of murder and four felony counts of child neglect causing serious bodily injury and a single count of aggravated battery. The newspapers ran headlines all the way up to the trial, keeping the, the accident in the front of everyone's collective minds. The defense requested a mistrial based on the fact that the state missed the 70-day speedy trial deadline, but it was denied as the judge blamed both prosecution and defense for the delay and said that the defense failed to object to the delay in a timely manner. The trial began late April of 2001 and lasted approximately three weeks. The jury was selected from Dearborn County and brought to Martinsville for trial. I think they were afraid that there were too many people in Morgan County who were biased. I want to stop right here and read an article written by Bet Nunn uh, before the trial began in her column titled Bet's Barbs. Now, Bet Nunn is also the author of the book uh, written about Stephen Judy called Burn Judy Burn, and she is also a journalist for the Reporter Times out of Martinsville. The article was titled, I keep wanting to say titered, so the article was titered, uh, Pastor Upset Because Some Are Critical of Mrs. Real. The article published on uh, September 27th, 2000, is as follows. I'm reading this directly from the article. She says, I'm taking a break from my columns about memories of the past today because Zion Baptist fellow church pastor Kevin D'Angelo voiced a pressing concern. He said that some people are verbally attacking Louise Real, and he feels he should speak out against this. On March 25th, Mrs. Real lost her husband, Thomas, her daughter, Jessica, who's 14, and son, Bradley, 13, in a wreck on State Road 67. The driver of the other vehicle was Judy Kirby, who has been charged with seven counts of murder, including Mr. Real's and the, his two children, three of her own, who is Mrs. Kirby's, and her nephew. Authorities say she intentionally drove the wrong way on the on State Road 67 in an effort to commit suicide. Mrs. Kirby denies this. While many people have been supportive and sympathetic towards Mrs. Real, a few individuals have approached or phoned her and told her that she needs to be forgiven or that she needs to be forgiving and drop the case against Mrs. Kirby. Some have been downright nasty. And this is what Pastor D'Angelo has to say to those people. Since March 25th, 2000, the encouragement and support for Mrs. Louise Real has been nothing less than overwhelming. Nearly every person has been gracious and kind with a positive word for either her or me. But unfortunately, it's only nearly. So I must take pen in hand again to see if I can help some of you misguided people with a few things. Several of my fellow citizens have actually gotten on Mrs. Real's case, accusing her of not being, quote, forgiving of Judy Kirby. Some have said that she should forgive Judy Kirby and drop this matter and get on with life. Drop what matter? I have the distinct notion that some of you think Mrs. Real has or has something to do, had or had something to do with the prosecution of Judy Kirby. Do you think the prosecutor asked Mrs. Real if he could bring charges against Judy Kirby? Do you think Mrs. Real filed these charges against Mrs. Kirby? My fellow misguided citizens, if you think that, you are sadly mistaken and in need of a civics class. It is the state of Indiana versus Judy Kirby, not Mrs. Real versus Judy Kirby. Mrs. Real never asked her opinion about prosecution, nor could she do anything to stop it. The state is exercising its authority under the law of man and God, Romans 13, to be a terror to evildoers. I know a lot of liberty theology is preached out there by well-meaning yet ignorant people concerning, quote, judging people. 
My friends, Christians ought to be the biggest fans of law and order and fighting evil no matter what arena it's found in. Instead, we find professing Christian people wanting to excuse any behavior because they neither have the stomach nor the backbone to stand up to it. It sounds so spiritual to throw around biblical verses without even knowing whether or not you are, they are being used biblically then to stand up for the law and order and see those who are doing wrong punished. I hope I said that wrong. I felt like I tripped over my tongue there. Sorry. For those who want Mrs. Real to forgive Judy Kirby, I have only one question. Forgive her of what? Some have said that Mrs. Real ought to forgive Mrs. Kirby for killing her family. Sounds nice and warm and fuzzy, but how can Louise forgive someone of doing wrong to another person? In case you don't get it, let me state it this way. Judy Kirby is in Morgan County Jail because of what she did to eight people. She is not there because of what she did to Louise Real. Also missing is a request for forgiveness from the evildoer or the wrongdoer. Judy Kirby has never asked for forgiveness because she doesn't think she did anything wrong. In all biblical admonitions on forgiveness, the person who did the wrong must ask the person they wronged for forgiveness. Well, you well-intentioned people have a problem. Judy Kirby can't do that. The people she wronged can't speak for themselves anymore. Except for Richard Miller, all of the others she's wronged are dead. How can Louise Real, or anyone for that matter, forgive someone for doing wrong against someone else? Listen and learn, my fellow citizens. Louise Real can only forgive Judy Kirby for the hurt she caused her. She cannot forgive her for the wrong she's done to others. That's why God has put the sword in the hand of, of the rulers. To bring judgment against those who do wrong and to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. We are commanded to pray for those who rule so that they bear the sword, not so they bear not the sword in vain. Romans 13 again. Do you want to see the rulers bear the sword swiftly? I think most people do. So please, leave Mrs. Real alone if you don't have any encouraging words to say. She has dealt with more than most people will. Ever. If you have to vent, call me. I'm in the book. Here's a little advice to... Or here's a little advice if you do call. Bring your Bible and your lunch. You're going to need both. Bet goes on to say, the above comments are Pastor D'Angelo's words, but I do know one thing. Mrs. Real has suffered more than most human beings could bear without going absolutely crazy. I can think of nothing worse than to lose three members of your family in one instant. I also agree that people should not say unkind words to her. They can disagree with her if they like. They can sympathize with Judy Kirby for losing her children too if they want. But if they can't say something nice to Mrs. Real, they shouldn't say anything at all. None of this is her fault. It's a fact that Judy Kirby's car was going the wrong way and that she collided head-on with the, with the real vehicle. Whether she intended to self-destruct or not will be up to a jury to decide. It really sucks that this ever had to be brought to anyone's attention. And Louise Real is the wife of Thomas, mother of Bradley and Jessica, and they also had another daughter named Christine who was at home at the time of the accident. And she was a victim in this, yet people were approaching her, admonishing her for not being more forgiving of Judy Kirby. I wonder if the roles were reversed, if those same people could offer forgiveness to someone who carelessly took from them people they loved, who never even asked for it to begin with, and who never acted remorseful for what she had done simply because she couldn't remember it. The prosecution contended that Judy was suicidal and intended on taking her own life because of her involvement with drug dealings and the contentious relationship with her ex-boyfriend, while the defense team, who was a father-daughter duo named Jennifer Auger and Tom Jones out of Franklin, 
was trying to trying to throw different tactics at the wall to see what stuck from postpartum depression to mental illness. Now, I think if they had went with either of those defenses, I think it would have made more sense. But what they settled on was an imbalanced thyroid as the culprit for a psychotic break with reality, leaving her confused and unaware of her actions, but not suicidal. They also contend that this was not a crime, but an accident, and she shouldn't go to prison for an accident. The defense called an expert witness to explain her thyroid-induced delusions and said that Judy was either fleeing from, oh God, fleeing from Im imaginary pursuers or, or froze behind the wheel and could not stop. I think that's weak either way. The prosecution called their own witness who told the jury that Judy actually had hypothyroidism, which makes much more sense given her depression and the fact that she had given birth to eight children. That alone would render the adrenals very fatigued leading to hypothyroidism, and that the thyroid-induced psychosis was extremely rare. On May 10, 2001, the jury found her guilty on all counts. She openly sobbed in court as the verdict was read. Now, Judy felt it was wrong to be punished for something she couldn't remember, and so did her family as well as her defense team. They firmly believed that she wasn't responsible for her actions because of a thyroid issue and her faulty memory, making her an innocent woman. Woman is anything but innocent. But just because you don't remember doing something doesn't mean you aren't responsible, especially when children are involved. It's like she wasn't really even that remorseful that her kids were dead. No thyroid condition could cause a person to drive headlong into oncoming traffic with children in the car and risk the lives of other innocent people on the road. The jury didn't buy it and neither did the judge. On June 14, 2001, the judge told her that, she that while she believes Judy is mentally ill and was under provocation, it didn't mount to a defense. The judge sentenced her to 65 years for each of the three counts of murder involving the reels and 55 years for each of the four counts of murder and neglect involving the Kirby children and Jeremy Young. The counts merged together and are to be served simultaneously with the other counts. She also got 20 years for the single count of aggravated battery involving Richard Miller to be served consecutively. In other words, she received 215 years in prison. Even with time and a half, with half-time credit, she wouldn't be eligible for parole until 2107. Richard Miller, an, the only other survivor, told the Daily Journal in an article published a day after the verdict that he was having constant nightmares. He said that the crash felt like hitting a brick wall and bouncing back and then landing on their sides. Quote, I remember the rusty, jagged metal. I remember the smell of the dust and metal after the crash. I remember trying to reach my friend Bradley, but I couldn't. I remember calling his name out twice and he couldn't answer, or he didn't answer. So I figured he was just unconscious from the impact because it was such a strong force. This teenage boy was the only survivor other than Judy herself, and he remembers everything, even if Judy does not. That's a lot to have to live with, and if Judy didn't remember, that was the only grace she was afforded. The crash severely fractured his arm and leg, and despite surgeries, the injuries would never heal, and will serve as a permanent reminder of what happened that day. His mother, Paula, told the journal that, quote, the defense made the comment that Judy would live in her own personal prison for the rest of her life, but so will my son. Every day he looks at the scar on his arm or he feels the pain. Every day when he sits on the basketball court and he's not a starter because of his injuries and Bradley is not there, he will feel that pain. Judy Kirby took that away from us. Richard will never have a normal teenage life because of this. 
At the sentencing hearing, the victims were allowed to give impact statements. Judy listened from her seat, weeping bitterly. Paula spoke on her son's behalf, describing the painful surgeries and physical therapy that he would have to endure, not to mention the psychological scars that will last the rest of his life. You robbed my son of his youth, she said, his health and his physical capabilities. You robbed your children of the life they were entitled to. You robbed Louise Real of her husband and children. Paula also asked the judge to divert any profits Kirby made off of her story into a trust fund for Richard's medical expenses, as he had over $200,000 in medical bills. If there was one person throughout this whole ordeal who was hell-bent on making sure Ju Judy Kirby paid for her crime, it was Louise Real. Yes, she was a very forgiving, faithful woman, but she was not going to let this woman try to find loopholes to get out of this. She was there every day of the trial, and when she was allowed to give her impact statement, she said, quote, Your children were beautiful. I can't understand why a mother would do that to her children. It's beyond my comprehension. Louise, one by one, described her husband, son, and daughter and how their deaths have left the lives of her and Christine in a state of constant upheaval. Quote, the words I will never hear again and that I miss the most are when Bradley put his arms around me and told me that he loved me and I will never get to hear that again. Louise went on to express her outrage that Judy's family allowed her to drive with four children that day when she was clearly at risk uh, to harm herself and others. Quote, I don't understand why you did not do everything in your power to help her that day. Judy Kirby didn't testify on, in her own defense at trial, nor did she give a statement at the sentencing hearing. Her lawyer said it would be inappropriate given that she will be appealing her conviction. Her pastor said that she was very remorseful for the accident. In a final statement, her lawyer noted that given she sustained head injury in the crash, she couldn't remember the accident. I laid awake all night last night thinking how horrible it would be to be sentenced for something you couldn't recall. Fortunately, the law doesn't work that way. While it's certainly got to suck not to remember the reason you're in prison, it doesn't take away from the fact that she did this. And imagine what Richard Miller has to remember every day of his life. In February of 2002, Kirby's lawyer Jennifer Auger requested that a judge correct errors in the transcript of Judy's trial, which was a step in the appeals process. Auger said the contents of several bench conferences conducted during the trial were listed as inaudible or not included at all in the 2,700 pages of trial record. Judge Jane Craney, and the, the judge at Kirby's trial, and the deputy prosecutor uh, Terry Iacoli along with Auger reviewed the tapes and they agreed on one point that the details of the bench conference on the defense's request for a mistrial during the prosecutor's opening statements should be in the transcript. Also in February, the reporter Times out of Martinsville featured a story about Louise Real starting a victims outreach program called New Life Victims Outreach, which would support and aid survivors of violent crimes and family tragedies through the New Life Baptist Church in Mooresville. I don't know that that's still around because I tried to do a Google search on it and I can't find any, anything on it other than what happened uh, around this time period. Uh, Louise said that she had attended the trial and received support of prosecutors and law enforcement and rescue agencies, but the contact ended after the sentencing. She felt she had no place to go to ease her pain and realized that others didn't either. While there is an organization called Survivors, Traumatic, Survivors of Traumatic Loss that operates in Johnson and Shelby counties, there was nothing at that time for those in Morgan County. 
victims and survivors need to have people to listen to, she said, and assure them that they can rise above their tragedy. In early 2002, a judge ruled that a $50,000 car accident insurance policy issued to Judy Kirby was to be split into eight shares of $6,250 each and distributed. Three shares totaling $18,750 would be paid to Louise Real. One share of of $6,250 would be paid to Paula Miller for Richard Miller. And the three and the remaining four shares would be paid to Victor Kirby on behalf of the tr- of the three Kirby children and Jeremy Young. In August of 2002, the newspapers were reporting that the Indiana Court of Appeals upheld the conviction and the 215-year sentence. Now I'm taking this directly from the Reporter Times in Martinsville. Uh, the article was published um, August 30th, 2002. Jennifer Auger had raised several issues on in her. Each issue was addressed by the high court one by one and sought fit to deny them all. So let's go through these counts together, shall we? So number one, Auger states that Judge Cranny erred when she denied Auger's motion to dismiss the case because the case missed the 70-day speedy trial deadline. The appeals court ruled that Auger had asked for the, the trial's delay because the prosecution informed her of 22 witnesses who would testify to Kirby's drug dealing activities. The court said the prosecution provided the names of the witnesses within the judge's deadline. Number two, Auger said Craney should not have allowed the states or the state to use evidence of Kirby's drug dealing. Her argument was that it outlined prior bad acts and such evidence, which includes crimes for which the defendant is not charged, can be used for specific reasons such as proving motive, but the need to do so must outweigh its prejudicial impact. So in other words, this is a murder, tri- murder trial, Myrtle, Myrtle. This was a murder trial, and having people testify over and over that she dealt drugs had nothing to do with the trial. However, the court said, no, you didn't object during the trial to use the evidence, so now you lose the right to to raise the issue on appeal. Even if she had objected, the evidence of Kirby's drug dealing was highly relevant to her state of mind at the time of the collision, and that such evidence was offered to prove a piece of the state's theory that Kirby was motivated to commit suicide. Auger accused prosecution of two incidences of misconduct. She accused Terry I. Coley of leading the testimony of Tinny Kirby and made reference that he could not ask Kirby any questions. Auger requested a mistrial then, saying I. Coley's statement prejudiced the jury against Kirby, who was exercising her constitutional right not to testify. The court said that the statement did not place the judge or the defendant in grave peril, since the statement could reasonably be taken as an inadvertent comment. She accused Prosecutor Steve Sonaga of placing a, quote, evidentiary harpoon in front of the jury during opening remarks. He had told the jury that they would hear from Kirby's, quote, associate, who would testify that she'd been dealing drugs for years. During the hearings to determine how much drug evidence to admit, the judge had ordered prosecution Uh, could only use evidence from the year prior to the accident. The appeals court said this does not reach the level of mistrial since since Judge Craney explained the statement to the jury and told them to disregard it. Auger said that the judge should have given the jury instruction on the nature of circumstantial evidence and that she erred by allowing two police officers to remain in the courtroom despite the separation of witness order. The high court cited case law and said the judge acted in accordance with trial rules and Indiana law to make those decisions. Auger argued that Kirby's 215-year sentence was unreasonable in the light of defenses committed and Kirby's character. 
The court found that Judge Craney correctly sentenced Kirby. She was given the maximum sentence for each of the Reels' deaths and Miller's battery and stacked the sentence. She gave slightly lower sentences for the four children and ran those concurrently. The judge found that the aggravating circumstance greatly outweighed the mitigating ones and chose to impose the maximum sentence for the death of the Reels. The high court also concluded that Kirby's character did not support a lesser sentence. The record reveals that Kirby directed those crimes at her children, her nephew, and the public at large. In fact, Kirby drove her car in the wrong direction on a busy highway in total disregard of the safety of her passengers and every motorist who happened to be driving southbound on State Road 67 that fateful day. We see nothing in the nature of these offenses nor the character of this offender that would suggest that Kirby's 215-year sentence is unreasonable, let alone manifestly so. On October 17, 2004, the Indianapolis Star ran an article on the front page of the city and state section called Memorials Let Survivors Hold On to Loved Ones. The top half of the page shows a view from behind the memorial, which shows State Road 67 where the crash occurred. At the top of the page is a quote from Louise Real Kosari that reads, You never forget anything, and I don't want people to forget what happened. Seven sturdy wooden crosses one larger than the others, sit back a few yards from the road just north of Willow Road as a memorial to the seven lives who were lost that day. The article states that a short time later after the accident, this memorial had appeared, and that a man who lived nearby tended to the crosses, mowing a shape of a heart in the grass around them. It still stands there, 20 years after the tragedy, as a solemn reminder. Now, I've taken some photos and put them on the Instagram page if you want to check it out. It really is... A lovely little memorial and it's out of the way it's back a little bit from the road unless you know it's there or you're looking out their window you probably wouldn't know that it's there all right I want to play a clip real quick from one of the news stations regarding a new development case in 2012 let's listen to that clip a woman who was sentenced to more than 200 years in prison for killing seven people including six children returns to a Morgan County courtroom Judy Kirby wants a new trial more than a decade now after she caused that deadly crash. Our eyewitness news reporter Rich Van Wyk went to Martinsville for Kirby's latest court hearing today. It will likely be months before Judy Kirby and her victims know whether she will get a new trial. Her first trial ended with a guilty verdict and 215 years in prison. In the almost 14 years since then, this is the first time Louise Real Casari has seen the woman who killed her husband Thomas and teenage children, Bradley and Jessica. There's just no accountability and people think when they do something wrong, they can get away with it or we can find a loophole for you to get away with it. In 2000, Kirby raced head on into highway traffic, smashing into the Reels family van. Three of Kirby's children and a nephew were also killed. Prosecutors claimed she was trying to commit suicide. The defense insisted Kirby was mentally ill, that it was an unintentional accident. Now Kirby's new attorneys claim there was misconduct by prosecutors and that her first lawyers were ineffective. They made critical mistakes during the trial and first appeal and irreversibly tainted the jury's decision. Prosecutor Steve Sonica, though, believes the original verdict will stand. Objectively looking at it, um, you'd have to conclude that the system worked that justice was done. Louise remarried. She has a daughter, grandchildren, and an unwavering commitment. It's a bigger picture than just me. 
it's all the victims that you need to stay in there you need to fight you don't need to give up you need to just hang in there and truth will prevail and justice will prevail prosecutors insist some of the issues being raised now have already been dismissed in a previous appeal judge jane spencer craney called some of the defense's arguments almost ludicrous but admitted at least one deserves further investigation her decision isn't expected until early next year in martinsville rich van wyke channel 13 eyewitness news in mid-October of 2012, Kirby sought post-conviction relief. She requested that her conviction be overturned and that she be given a new trial. In her petition, she alleges that her Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights were violated during her trial. She is now saying that her, her attorneys were ineffective because they allowed allegations of prior bad acts to be used during the trial. Kirby claims she was suffering from, a, from medical and mental problems when the accident happened and that her attorneys were negligent in not introducing that evidence into court. She said that Terry Icoli made a statement in his closing argument that should have resulted in a mistrial. She also states that Judge Craney couldn't keep an open mind during trial because the case involved children and said that the judge had been removed from other cases that involved children. She asked to be declared indigent, which means poor and needy, and have an attorney from the public defender's office represent her. That right there, I mean, everything just, that kills me. She can't keep an open mind because it involved children. That's egregious to me. I mean, that's, who should keep an open mind when children are dead? I'm sorry. I don't think it works like that. As could be expected, seeing Kirby's name in the papers again highly upset Louise Real, who at this point had remarried and was going by the name Louise Real Kasari. She said that her mother cried when she read about Kirby's request in the news media. Quote, why is it that her rights as a citizen are way up here and our rights are way down here? And it was our loved ones who died. She went on to say, quote, you never get over it. It's not natural. At least when someone is dying of a terminal illness, the family has time to prepare to say their last words of comfort and their I love yous. But in our case, they left the house and we never got a chance to say how much we loved them. In an instant, those lives were gone, snuffed out for no good reason. It's human nature to want to know why this happened, but God doesn't always tell us his reasons at the time. She also said that her daughter wants to see Judy Kirby face to face, but Louise told her to wait until the request was settled and that she doesn't require an apology from Kirby. Judy hasn't reached out to us to say she's sorry, but our emotions still come back in waves. Every Christmas and at birthdays of one of the children or my husband, our suffering comes back. The crash destroyed everything, but you have to keep getting dressed, raise the children you have left, take them to practices and school events. You have to get back into the rhythm of life. You weren't given a choice. I just want to help her. I want her to get help and take responsibility for what she's done. She needs to stay where she is, admit her crime, suck it up, and live out her sentence. I don't want to hear her excuses. Hopefully it all just stops. She wrote a letter stating her intent to be the voice that speaks for the victims. And I'll read this now. So the open letter re reads, The voice that speaks for Tom, Jessica, Bradley Real, Jacob, Joni, Jordan, and Jeremy. For the past two weeks, headlines have been bold and loud about Kirby wanting a new trial for the crimes she committed. But in small type are the names of the life she has selfishly taken. There is something wrong with that. Did you stop and wonder if we would uplift the voice of the victim and stop giving the offender their years of fame? Maybe this madness, maybe madness like this would stop. 
the offenders need to realize that once you do a horrific crime, their rights should stop. However, this is obviously not what happens. This is not about her. This is all about the seven lives she has taken. Tom, Jessica, Bradley, Jacob, Joni, Jordan, and Jeremy. The family and the lives she has destroyed because on March 25th, 2000, she chose to commit murder. I will be the voice who will continue to speak on their behalf to make sure justice remains just and that the offender, Judy Kirby, stays where she is at. She seems to have forgotten what she has done, and because of her actions, it put her exactly where she belongs. She should be thankful that she gets to see her family, hear the words, I love you, and take a breath every day. My daughter and I don't get to hear those words from Tom, Jessica, and Bradley. I don't get to see them every day. I cannot see them at all, and it's because of her selfish actions. She took their lives. My daughter, Christine, does not get to have her father, and now my granddaughter only has a picture by her bed and is told only memories of what a wonderful grandfather she could have had. These lives did not deserve this. Families did not need to be destroyed and changed forever. Now 12 years has passed, and this offender thinks she's been wronged. Once again, she has forgotten what she has done. And on March 7, 2013, the same month in which she murdered and destroyed families and lives, we have to listen to all the madness from a woman who wants out because she thinks she was treated unfairly. The facts remain the same. She murdered seven beautiful lives. So this voice will continue to be loud and strong for them to help her remain where she belongs for the horrific crimes she has done to my family and my loved ones, Tom, my beloved husband, Jessica, my beautiful daughter, and Bradley, my handsome young man. You are missed and loved dearly. Not a day goes by that you are not in my thoughts and heart. I also want to thank the Morgan County Prosecutor's Office for its diligent zeal in fighting for justice for each and every victim and to all Morgan County and my friends for their love and prayers. Oh, I almost started crying. That's a very sad one. Kasari also believes that Judy Kirby, Kirby survived the crash so that she could justly be punished for what she has done and that those appeals are flying in the face of her pastor's claim that Judy lives each day with remorse. I'm going to play a second clip because there were there were two that I found on YouTube. This is the second clip of the appeal. Woman serving a 215-year sentence for a crash that killed seven people wants a new trial. Judy Kirby will return to court tomorrow in Morgan County more than 14 years after a deadly wrong-way crash on State Road 67. Prosecutors claimed that Kirby intentionally drove north in the southbound lanes right into the path of another family's van. The wreck killed her three children and a nephew in her car, plus the driver and two more children in the van. Eyewitness News reporter Rich Van White went back to Martinsville today, where one woman's fight for a second chance is bringing back painful memories for many people in the community. Judy Kirby will be back in the same courtroom, facing the same judge who presided over her murder trial, accepted the jury's decision of guilty and sentenced her to 215 years in prison. Judy Kirby's attorneys claim her previous lawyers were ineffective. They allege misconduct by prosecutors and the trial judge. Serious legal errors, they say, violated Kirby's constitutional rights. Come in here this morning and said something about Kirby wants a new trial, and they go, what? I said, Kirby wants a new trial. Ann Lankford says the appeal is opening old wounds in a community that 14 years later is still healing. 
you didn't have to say anything. You did not have to explain to them what the what Kirby what was Kirby and what did Kirby do. No, she did something that was unforgivable. In 2000, Kirby raced her car, loaded with children, the wrong way up Highway 67. The high-speed head-on collision killed her three children and nephew. Two teenagers, Bradley and Jessica Reel, and their father Thomas, died in the van she hit. Prosecutors insisted Kirby was intent on committing suicide. Investigators claimed she was mentally ill. Jurors said guilty on all counts. The judge imposed the maximum sentences for murder. At the site of the crash, a memorial to the seven victims is a constant reminder. The first first responder to the scene was Judy Kochanzek's husband. It's something they will never get over, to see that many dead kids and to know that it was done on purpose. It affects them to this day, 14 yes. years later. Oh, yeah. The burden is on Judy Kirby and her attorneys. They must prove not only that mistakes were made, but the mistakes were significant enough to likely result in a different verdict and warrant a new trial. In Martinsville, Rich Van White, Channel 13, Eyewitness News. That's it for the case of Judy Kirby. So what are your thoughts? Do you think she is, as her family sees her, a loving mother who was severely depressed and a thyroid psychotic who lost touch with reality because of the stress of drug charges and an abusive boyfriend and freaked out one day in a delusion and didn't know she was speeding headfirst into oncoming traffic while her four kids were screaming in the car with her? Or is she, as the victim's families and community sees her, a selfish, suicidal woman overstressed with the burden of raising 10 kids while dealing drugs, possibly losing those kids in a custody battle to her ex-husband, but also having lost her man, who was her ex-husband's uncle, because she had so many kids and he was telling her he was going to turn her into the feds so that she would lose those kids. And so she decided to take the kids with her on a suicide mission. What kills me is when her sister says if she were going to commit suicide, she would have taken all those, ki all those kids with her. It's like she's saying the fact that she only had four kids with her and that should show that she wasn't trying to kill herself. Just because she only killed four and not the other six along with her doesn't make her any less suicidal. Let's just cut the shit here, okay? She knew what she was doing. She had nearly two miles of opportunities to slow down, to stop, to turn the car around... Or if nothing else, she could have left the four kids at the Speedway gas station before she took the suicidal drive up the wrong way on a Saturday when traffic isn't as light as it could have been. But that still would not have stopped her from killing other innocent people. I have lived with hypothyroidism my entire life until my immune system kicked in and attacked my thyroid altogether, but that's neither here nor there. And I can say that, yes, hypothyroidism does cause depression and I do suffer for some, from some wicked depression because of it however though she did not have a psychotic break because she had a thyroid issue and had a terrible accident she was suicidal and she had told her two sons uh, as such prior to the crash and it was because her life was falling down around her ears and she didn't know how to handle it she was dealing drugs because it was decent money. Hey, she had mouths to feed. And maybe she didn't have any schooling to fall back on since she got married at 15 and started pumping out those puppies with a quickness. Not condoning, but I understand the situation. And I know people who have lived in the Fountain Square area where she was living who have done the same things. And they're not bad people at all. But you do what you have to do. She was dating her ex-husband's uncle and had kids with him. Again, not going to judge... It was an unconventional life choice. Uh, 
because I'm not in her shoes, so I'm, I'm not going to judge that. Well, he turns out to be a real winner and gets her involved in drug dealing. I don't have solid proof, but let's be real about this situation. He got her dealing drugs, probably because it was a good front. Most loving mothers with a thousand kids don't deal drugs. Even though outside of riding a pole, it's the quickest way to get cash for moms, you know, and started cheating on her and flaunting it and then turned it around and made her believe he was going to have her thrown in jail and she would lose her kids anyway. She was also fighting to keep her kids. And part of me wonders if Victor didn't know about the drug dealing and threatened her with it to get to get her to give him those kids, which hell, I don't blame him at this point. So to say she wasn't living under a mountain of pressure would would really be trivializing what she was going through. Maybe she did have a bit of postpartum depression. She had just had a baby four months prior to the crash, and after birthing her eighth child, she was definitely going to experience some sort of depression. That would have made more sense as a defense than the thyroid issue. But what she was dealing with was a powder keg, and she couldn't handle it. I give her that. It has to be a tough situation, but it was a situation in which she put herself and her 10 kids. She got involved in the drug dealing. Even if Tinny pressured her into it, she made the choice to do it anyway. She also made the choice to be with this man and bear at least two of his children. She made the choice to pick up her four kids, drive them all around the south side of the city acting really weird, and then drive 20 miles to Martinsville, which made no sense to anybody that she knew. She made the choice to get into the wrong side of the divided highway. She made the choice to press her foot on the accelerator, and she made the choice not to stop until she was dead. And I have to agree with Louise Casari on this one. I think she was left alive to pay for her choices. She chose to spread around as much suffering because she couldn't handle the mess of the, of the life that she had made. And she needs to choose to take responsibility for those choices instead of crying how unfair her trial was because the jury heard about her drug dealings and the prosecutor made an irrelevant freaking comment. Her pastor said how remorseful she is for what she's done, but she's made no attempts to apologize to anyone she's hurt. She's trying to find loopholes to get herself out of prison on the notion that, well, I don't remember, so I shouldn't have to atone for it. If you're truly remorseful for something, you don't seek to keep tearing open old wounds just because you don't like the sentence you got. No one wants to live their lives in prison, but you caused the deaths of seven innocent people simply because your life was catching up to you, and it's all your damn fault to begin with. You deserve the sentence you got, and you should feel lucky as hell not to be on death row where you really belong because you're not worth a damn to society anymore anyway. I can't have compassion for a mother who could do this to her children, let alone other innocent strangers who did nothing wrong to her. Even if she did succeed in committing suicide, she would have left her children with no mother. I empathize that she lost her children, and that's a hole that nothing can ever fill. But her choices are the reason that her kids are gone, and the reason that Louise's kids and husband are gone, and the reason that Richard Miller will have permanent reminders of that horrific day for the rest of his life. The surviving victims don't have a loophole they can go back to bring those babies back. That's just my piece. Maybe she can be rehabilitated and can become a useful part of society again. But I believe that so long as Louise Kasari and Christine is alive, they will do everything in their power to make sure she pays for what she's done, and rightly so. All right, I'm jumping off my soapbox because it's time for that spin. Let's go. All right, Joe, it's time to spin that wheel. Here we go. Hey, 
And we are going to be talking about cold cases solved by DNA. That's going to be awesome. Before we wrap up this episode, I want to start a new thing on the show, giving a few podcast recommendations. I know a lot of people are saying, you know, what other podcasts are out there? What do you listen to? So here we go. I'm going to suggest two for you today. And surprisingly, neither one of them are true crime podcasts. The first one is called Narcissist Rehab. This podcast is hosted by Bobby Voss and covers the topic of narcissistic abuse from various aspects. This is a specific sort of podcast designed to help those dealing with narcissistic abuse abuse in various stages of healing. He doesn't publish weekly, but each episode is helpful and it sheds light on a topic that many people don't want to talk about or perhaps are in denial about. You can find the Narcissist Rehab podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, another awesome podcast that I highly recommend is The Pat Down by Miss, with Miss Pat. Now, y'all know I'm from Indianapolis and Miss Pat is a comedian who lives here in Plainfield, which is basically a suburb of Indy. And she has been a regular in Bob and Tom for a long time. And the reason I started listening to her podcast is because I was listening to uh, Joe Rogan. And the only episode of Joe Rogan I've ever listened to is Miss Pat. Because as soon as I found out that she had a podcast, I just dived in and started listening. Started binging all her episodes. Um, every time she's on, or every time she was on Bob and Tom, I always listen. Um, now, if you have Netflix, check out the show Degenerates. She's also on one of the episodes. I want to say season two, maybe episode two as well. She's funny, she's real, and she's got her own podcast. But fair warning, if you're sensitive to the F-bomb, this probably isn't going to be for you. <laughs> but if you're like me and you listen to a lot of true crime, this is a great palate cleanser. It's hilarious. It's so I find myself laughing out loud all the time. If you like the show, follow her on Facebook and become a crack baby. You heard what I said. We're all Miss Pat's crack babies, y'all. So that's going to do it for this episode, y'all. Thanks for tuning in and listen next time. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Wheel of Crime Podcast. Email us with your thoughts on the show, or if you have a new category or case suggestion, email me at wheelocrimepodcast at gmail.com. Until then, stay safe and stay at home unless you're one of the essentials. Have a good week, wash your hands, and don't be a dick. Wheel of Crime Podcast. Wheel of Crime Podcast.